framed upon the wall, maybe in somebody's office, maybe on your refrigerator. It's in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. And before we read these verses, I'd like us to pray, and then I'm going to read the Scripture. Then we're going to look at a little bit of the background of this Scripture and then make an application to our own lives. Let's pray. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Holy Word. This morning we were studying about how Your Word created all life forms as, as we understand them. Life throughout this universe and, and on this world too. Many of us here this morning have experienced uh, the power of Your Word in a different way. Um, through the Holy Spirit, You've brought us to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've forgiven us our sins, and You've brought us into a right relationship with You. We thank You for being members of Your church family, the family on earth, the family in heaven. And Lord, as we study the nation of Israel this morning, especially Judah, help us to see a little bit more clearly your plans and your purposes for each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's nice to have you here this morning. Last week we had a communion service, and the text I chose was in the book of Matthew. What chapter? 26, verse 28. Just one little verse to remember. And I talked about the covenants and got into the plans and the purposes a little bit of God through the covenants. Today I'm continuing that idea in the book of Jeremiah with some of the mo most favorite verses anywhere in Scripture. And we're going to pick it up at verse 11. And it says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope, and the future. If you're using the Bibles in the pews, page 1221, verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Don't you just love those verses? I remember when I was searching for God, even though I didn't know I was searching for God, and hearing this supernatural voice as I was fumbling around looking for meaning that said, read the Bible. And I had one Bible, a Bible I was given when I left school at 15 years of age, a King James Bible, very plain-looking Bible, small print, pretty boring-looking book. But in that boring-looking book, I found eternal life. God used the words of Scripture to draw me to Himself. And these verses in Jeremiah, I tr tried so many times. To, wasn't there just one magical verse in Scripture that kind of brought me from death to life, and, and I can't think what that one verse would be. It was a cumulative effect of Scripture that brought me through the Holy Spirit 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. But these words in Jeremiah, my mind has always gone back to them. And I believe that God used them in his own miraculous, special way <clears throat> to impress me at that time in my quest for God. What I want to do this morning is give you a little bit of their context. Because as beautiful and as encouraging as these words are, and I think they're just great verses to go into the new year. I don't know about you, Jake, but I'm pumped up for the new year. As Annie said earlier, it's a time when many of us think of new beginnings, turning a page. Some would say out with the old and in with the new. That's not all bad. Sure, there's many good things that we've done in the old year, as well as some things that we probably want to forget about. Well, we have fiscal cliffs to deal with. I don't know about you, it doesn't appeal to me to go to the edge of a cliff. Neither the wind or someone pushes me off into the abyss. But we have fiscal economic challenges. And if we approach these things in the right way, they're not insurmountable. But I want to take you back to the time of Judah. You, most of you in this room have a general idea of what God, why God formed the Jewish nation, why he had these Israelites, northern, southern kingdoms, how unfortunately disintegration came, and it was always because of the disobedience of God's people. As we heard briefly last week in the communion service, God makes covenants or agreements with his people. Last week we talked a little bit about the new covenant that Jesus talked about and, and fulfilled on Calvary's cross. In the book of Deuteronomy, in a number of places, it talks of, here are the terms of the covenant. If you will be obedient, if you will do A, B, and C, then God says, I will do the rest. I will bring the blessings. You will prosper and not be harmed. But we know as we read the Old Testament, it's pretty much a history of failure on the part of God's people and how God over and over again would always have a remnant, a group of people that would emerge, maybe a small group at times, that would be faithful to him. Look at the beginning of chapter 29 to try and get a little bit of a feel for the context. Jeremiah wrote a letter. The Babylonians had come. They came on three occasions, but the Babylonians had come, and they'd taken many of God's people into exile. We know if you read the whole book of Jeremiah, which, by the way, is the longest book in the Bible. Did you know that? So somebody said to you this morning, hey, which is the longest book in the Bible? Book of Jeremiah apparently has the most words, so I've read, uh, of any book in the Bible. If you read the book of Jeremiah, if you just go through the first chapter, you will clearly see it's the sins of God's people 
that are bringing what seems like disaster upon them. They're being taken from their home, from their houses, from their land, no temple. Everything that was precious to them except God is being stripped away. God is taking them to a strange land. What was that land? Babylon, the land of Babylon with King Neb. King Neb didn't like you. He'd throw you into the fire, literally. So it could be very, very cruel at times. But God, in His wisdom, chose the Babylonians to bring discipline to His people, to teach them, though it may be an incredibly hard way to learn it, to teach them to trust and to depend on Him, and not to worship these foolish idols that they were always worshiping. Now, there would, I've already mentioned Jeremiah as a prophet, and he is on this side, he is a true prophet. But there were other so-called prophets, and they are false prophets. And here's essentially what they said. They said, in a few years, God is going to restore the misfortunes of Judah. And they were teaching and preaching something that was not from God at all. And there was this one lone man, maybe he wasn't the only one, Ezekiel was alive at that time, and he was with the exiles, but there were very, very few true prophets who would say, no, it's going to be 70 years. God in His wisdom has decided it's going to be 70 years before the remnant will return back to Judah. Verse 4, this is what the Lord God Almighty says, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down. Don't rebel. Don't try and fight against the Babylonians and against Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we know from historical records that there was an insurrection against Nebuchadnezzar. It may have been at this time. And maybe the the people of Judah, the exiles, were being drawn into that. Maybe it was tempting. Maybe they saw an opportunity to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. But the prophet is saying, via God, is saying, do not do that. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Does God encourage marriage here? Are they to marry the Babylonians? No. They're to find husbands and wives amongst, amongst their own. Increase in number there. Do not decrease also, this is a very interesting verse, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city, Babylon, to which I have carried you into exile. That is an amazing verse. Pray, work for the benefit of your captors. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it, 
if it prospers, if the Babylonians prosper, if Babylon prospers, if Nebuchadnezzar prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Verse 9, they are prophesying what? Lies. Do you have the discernment? Do you know God so well? Are you and I so in tune with the Holy Spirit? Do we know the Word of God well enough to be able to see the difference between truth and lies? Especially in a time of crisis, when it seems that your whole world is tumbling down, and wouldn't we, wouldn't we know, wouldn't we expect it that that evil one, Satan, sends his false prophets to preach a smooth, welcoming, easy message? But the bottom line, it was lies. Verse 9, they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. It's incredible that the prophet Jeremiah could predict, even if 70 is a round number, could predict how long the Babylonians would rule. So we often go to Daniel, don't we? And we go to the metal man in Daniel 2. We say this, this empire will be from this date to this date. Well, Jeremiah had written it years earlier. And when Daniel comes along, godly Daniel, and when Daniel is pouring over, seeing the captivity of people, being a captive himself, pouring over these prophecies, he's going over the prophecy of Jeremiah. And he's saying, maybe... Could it be that the time is almost fulfilled when God's people will go back to their land? And then we have these beautiful, amazing truths and promises here, verse 11 of chapter 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Do you have hope? Do you have a future with hope? If you're a believer in Christ, you should emphatically say yes. Maybe you just have a short time to live. You should still say emphatically yes, because you understand God's plan probably way better than Jeremiah did, certainly better than many of these exiles did. The challenge for them, when it seemed that their world was tumbling down, is to find purpose and meaning in what is happening around them. Now, it's the hand of God it's important to see this. It's the hand of God that is allowing these Babylonians to take them captive. You and I might think of some other plan that we think would be better 
for teaching God's people on how to trust and obey Him. This is part of God's plan for them. I'm sure God has a plan for you and for me. If we start breaking the covenant, disobeying God, wanting to live sinful lives instead of holy lives, I guarantee on the Word of God, emphatically, I can say that God has a plan for you. As I've said before, you can do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. I do not believe that when we're rebellious, God just abandons us. Scriptures do not teach that. Could He eventually abandon us? Yes, the Scriptures do teach that. But I think we miss a lot of the beauty of the gospel and of truth and of the kind of God that we have if we feel that when we, we slip up, we mess up, that God just dumps us. The Scriptures don't teach that. All we have to see is the life of Jesus with the disciples. Could He save Judas? Did He save Judas? No, because Judas would not go in that direction. Judas, I believe, was never converted. But Jesus says the disciples, except one, were clean which I assume is a figure of speech for them being in a right relationship with him. And they all abandoned him. I never spoke about that last week with Jesus on the cross, but they all abandoned him at the end. It wasn't just Peter that denied him. They all abandoned him. Did he forgive them? Did he restore them? Did they end up to be great leaders in the Christian church? Absolutely. God's hands are not tied he has rebellious people, he will find ways. Sometimes he allows sickness to come into our lives. We see that in the book of Corinthians. I think the book of Corinthians would be an interesting book to go through to do a series or maybe a short series. There's a lot of very practical material there for local congregations. And one of them was that when they had their communion, which they often would have an agape feast with that communion, that the rich would sit at one end of the table and the poor at the other end of the table. They wouldn't share their food. Imagine if you left this service this morning looking forward to a fellowship meal and certain people made it really, really clear that they're not going to sit with you, they're not going to eat with you, they're just not going to be very nice to you. Would that make you a happy Adventist? I don't think so. But that's what was going on in the church of Corinth. Factions, bickering, putting one another down. And Paul says, because of this, God has allowed some of you to be sick. Kind of slow you down, lay on your back. Maybe you'll think about him and your relationship with him and with other people, and he's allowed some of you to die. Well, for us, death is, wow, that's really, really bad. Well, maybe not so bad if God, even through death, can save you and uh, discipline you and get you where he wants you to be. The point is, even though there's some mysteries in all of this, the point is that God has plans and purposes for every human being ever born onto this planet. First thing, of course, is to get us 
to be convicted of our sins so that we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether that happens, however that happens, God has many ways of doing that. Um, I hope that for each one of you, you have experienced that. The conviction of sin, the guilt of sin, eventually the confession of sin, the beautiful promises like we looked at last week of the forgiveness of sin, restoration, back into a right relationship with God, maybe for the very first time in your life, and part of being part of God's family. I think it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian, don't you? I don't really see any downside to it. It's all positive for me. If I learn how to cooperate with God and uh, participate in His plans and purposes for me. This phrase, God's plans, it's used a number of times in this chapter, um, talks about exquisite design. So I know some of you, like Marion and others, like to make quilts. We have friends, too, in Sacramento that are just very, very clever, very talented at making beautiful quilts with special designs. Maybe you've ever been through an Oriental bazaar, and you've seen probably Jeremiah, uh, when he wanted a bit of peace and quiet, maybe he'd go, I guess you wouldn't get much peace and quiet in a bazaar, but you would see these beautiful designs. That's the kind of language in the Hebrew that is used here. God has a beautiful design for you. Do you like that? A beautiful design. And, and it may take many different forms for each one of us, but he has a special, exquisite design specific, specifically for you and for your life. It says here in the Scripture, verse 11 and in verse 23 of chapter 29, that I know, for I know. When we were talking this morning about, uh, very briefly, on, on God having a plan in the Sabbath school time, uh, Jess, Jesse in our class said, in my class said, that God must have thought it through very well before He ever created this universe and, and this planet and Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, and so on. And I think that fits in very well here. God has plans and purposes that are well thought through. God obviously takes the initiative. We see that all over Scripture. But it's important to recognize that God's plans include us for you. Now, I know that some of you have found it very, very hard when I've been preaching on the gospel, the plan of salvation, justification, righteousness by faith, and all of those good, good things. You found it very, very hard to appropriate this to yourself individually. Yes, he wants to save all of us, but are you saying if I'm the only one on planet earth that is going to do it for me? Yes, that is what I believe scripture is teaching. For you, in the communion service, that's what Jesus did. I'm doing this for you. And I have a whole sermon or a mini sermon. I don't ever preach sermons on communion, but a little homily on for you, for you, for you. Well, how do you see God? How do you see His plans? Do you see yourself as part of them? Do you, do you see God 
as a God who will always do the best for you, even if it's 70 years in captivity in Babylon, that is the best for you. Now, that takes faith to believe that, right? When you're going through a tough time, sickness, as in Corinth, for you? Yes, for you, for your, for your best. Where this comes through really clear in Scripture is in Romans chapter 8. And uh, that would be another good series too, where God, if God has done all of this for us, Romans 5 as well, God has done all of this. If he's done the very hardest thing, Romans 5, which is to redeem us when we were enemies, that's the hardest thing for God to do. If he's done the hardest thing, why will he not do the easier thing, which is to complete the work in you and bring you into glory? It's all for you. And it gives me the impression that God is a good God, always doing the best for me, even when I'm in exile, even when I'm being, being disciplined. The book of Hebrews talks a lot of this idea of disciplining. In Hebrews, it looks like some of them were ready to throw in the towel, to go back to Judaism, to go back to the old status quo ways of uh, looking at God and worshiping God. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, you can't do that. You've gone too far for that. There is no other way. It's got to be the Jesus way. Don't throw in the towel. Keep your faith. Keep your focus. Keep your vision on the Lord Jesus Christ. When suffering comes, when disappointment comes, can you still believe that this good God is doing things for your benefit? The end goal is to bring us into glory. So it's not just about justification and being made right with Him. And it's certainly not just about sanctification and living a holy life on a daily basis. All of those are steps towards something greater. What is that? Glorification. The glory of God entering into God's presence for eternity, never ever to be separated from Him. It's hard for our minds to grasp how glorious that will be. Bible tries to help us in passages where it talks of the new heavens and a new earth, where it talks about tears being wiped away, no more pain, no more suffering. Aren't these glimpses into the glory that's coming? Jesus put it a different way. <clears throat> he says, "Your very the hairs of your head, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He's aware of the sparrow that falls down and dies. Everything that happens in your life has plans, there are plans and there are purposes for it. Well, it says in the Scripture here that these plans and these purposes are to, verse, verse uh, 12, or verse 11, to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, in the King James Version, it might have the word peace, where it has prosperity there. So if you look at these Hebrew words, the Hebrew word is shalom. We even have a song in our hymnal called Shalom. If you look at that song in our hymnal, 
don't know if somebody could find that while I'm looking. It actually tells you what the word means. There it is, 674. Go to 674. Maybe I should do a solo this morning. What are you laughing at, Jay? Look, look at the right at the bottom of page 674, number 674, right on the bottom of the page. Small print, so you've got to have good eyesight. The word shalom has a triple meaning. Hello, farewell, and here's the part I like, and peace. See why they've translated in the King James, peace there? And peace with special overtones of loving concern and sincere caring for each other. And that's why the NIV says prosperity. Well-being. God wants every area of your life to be shalom. Total harmony with Him. It's a beautiful concept. And as I said, we even have a, a song that we sing, Shalom. So, to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It would seem for these people of Judah who were in exile that there was no future, but there was a future because Jeremiah had said in this letter in verse 10, it's 70 years. Now, it's true that some of them would die in Babylon during that 70 years time, but at least there's light at the end of the tunnel. And if you understand the Word of God, and if you're listening to the voice of God through His prophet Jeremiah, then you will have hope, a future with hope. Then you will call upon me, verse 12, and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. See, there are some basic ingredients to this covenant relationship, this love relationship between God and us. The relationship is based upon God's terms, right? He dictates the terms of the relationship. After all, He is the Creator, we are the creature. So, in this passage here, He's saying, okay, we can renew the relationship, so to speak, when you seek for me and you search for me with what? All of your heart. You can't play games with God. We do that all the time, but we shouldn't do that. It's sinful to do that. We need to be honest and transparent, like a little child going to their parent and making a request of, of the parent, hopefully uh, with sincerity, with, with integrity, transparency, and so on. And when we get serious with God, we're not just going to talk about how bad it is to worship idols. We're actually going to burn our idols. We're going to bury our idols. We're going to put our idols behind us, whatever it is. When we get serious with God, the Scripture says He will do what? He will listen to me. You will call. You will come. You will pray, and I will listen to you. You will seek me, and you will what? Find me. It's one thing to seek as I was doing before I was a Christian, it's another thing to find. 
And here it talks about finding God uh, when you seek for me with all of your heart, with all of your will, with all of your energy. Many people will be lost for eternity because they were only half-hearted with God. Many Seventh-day Adventists will be lost for eternity because they are not passionate about their relationship with God. They're not passionate about church. They're what we call nominal Christians, if you can call them Christians at all. Because how can you call yourself a Christian and not be serious in your relationship with God? I think you can mess up in many ways in your Christian walk, but this is one area where we never should We should never dilute it. We should never water it it down. Passion, whether you're hot or cold, the Laodicean message, remember that? Whether you're hot or cold, we can never be blah in our relationship with God. It might take time. It might take energy, the will, whatever it takes. We've got to make sure that our, our relationship with God is rock solid. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. That is a constant message in the prophets. Don't be half-hearted. Don't worship in a nominal way. Don't have, even if you have, you lived in the time of the Old Testament with these animal sacrifices, you could do everything according to the letter of the law perfectly as it had been handed down through Scripture, through tradition, could do it all perfectly, and God, because He knows you through and through, says your heart is not in it. I'm going to spit you out. There's no room for the lukewarm, Laodicean, going through the motions type of relationship with God. Well, it ends on good news here. I will listen to you, as we saw in verse 12. Verse 10, I will come to you which means I will take up your cause, I will be your defender, I will be your champion. As long as you're sincere on your end of the the bargain, I will come through for you. I will fulfill my gracious promise to you, verse 10, and bring you back to this place. Repentance, obedience, equals prosperity and blessing. You can never divide that. God has done the most incredible thing by fulfilling His part of the covenant. He died on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the human race. There is nothing greater than God doing that. So what does the Lord ask from you and I? your hearts, your will, your passion. That is the most important thing to focus on, not whether you slip up here or slip up there. To believe that God, it's all about painting a picture of God, to believe that God is for you always, even despite your difficulties and discouragements, Some of you here this morning have real challenges with your health, surgery after surgery, 
people having divorces, lots of tragedy. I've talked a little bit about the economic challenges in our society, things uh, like the darts of the evil one just hitting us from all sorts of angles. But above all of that is a God who loves us in control of us, who has plans and purposes for us to prosper us, to give us shalom. Hello? Farewell? Peace, prosperity, well-being in this new year. And just as much as these people of Judah so wanted that, and some of them would have to find it in Babylon, or eventually when they went back to the land of Judea and Jerusalem, they wanted it so much, we want it so much, right? We want to be happy on this earth, we want to be prosperous on this earth, not just, not just materially, of course, but spiritually as well. We want to be blessed in every area of our life. Well, learn from the mistakes of the people of Judah. Don't make their mistakes. Throw everything into your relationship with Christ in this new year, and you and this church family and God's people will be blessed. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for Jeremiah, initially the reluctant prophet. He made his face like flint because Satan was going to throw everything at him, even through his own church family. And I, I thank you, Lord, that ultimately he stood strong in your strength. Lord, we want to be obedient. If, if there's need of repentance, then may it be genuine repentance on our part. If there is need of burying and putting away our idols, then take them, Lord, and give us the strength to get rid of them. And we look forward, Lord, in this new year to your peace, to your prosperity, to your shalom in our lives. For we ask these things in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Shalom. Shalom.